All right. I've been asked uh, some questions, so I'll do, we're on, on mass attendance, so let me just clear this up. I'm just going to read from a, a moral manual. It's written by Father Henry Davis, a Jesuit. The imprimatur's like 1948-1949. Nothing's changed in the requirements since then. Okay, so he's talking about for the right assistance at or hearing of Mass. And he says, Bodily presence must be continuous during the Mass from the beginning to the last Gospel exclusively. The faithful are obliged to hear the whole of Mass without even the smallest omission. But very often is not at all heard. And it may be reasonably asked, both by those who would not willingly disobey the Church in a serious matter and by negligent Catholics, what omission would be, in the common opinion of moral theologians, a serious omission? It is a grievous sin to omit a notable part of the Mass, either in view of the mount, that is to say a third part, or of the dignity. Mass will not be heard substantially if the following parts are omitted, all up to the part of the offertory of the Mass, for that is a third part, all up to the Gospel inclusive with, together with all after the Communion, all from the preface exclusive to the Paternoster, both the consecration and communion, the consecration are both or even of one species. If a notable part of the Mass is missed, that amount of another Mass should be heard if possible. But it's commonly held that consecration and communion should be in one and the same Mass. If only a small part of Mass is omitted outside the consecration, there is no obligation to make up that amount by hearing the corresponding part of another Mass. Involuntary absence during either consecration or communion would not would certainly not impose the obligation of hearing in another Mass. Involuntary absence. If you're taking a child out, that's an involuntary absence. You're not missing Mass. You're taking care of that child because the child needs care. That's okay. You're not missing Mass. We just heard the story of the Good Samaritan. If you're on the way to Mass and uh, there's somebody broke down in a wreck and you stop and you're getting everything by the time the ambulance goes and all that, you've missed Mass, you didn't miss Mass. Because you can't drive by like the priest and Levi and the Samaritan. Oh, they're dying. Oh, well, you know, I've got to get to Mass. You just stop and take care of that right then, and you didn't miss Mass. It's a positive obligation. If the kids are all sick and only one parent can get to Mass, then the one that's taking care of the sick, they didn't miss Mass because you have to do those kind of things. It's a positive obligation. Negative commandments, are, you're never excused. Like when uh, God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, there's not a little drop down, you know, on that one. Okay, but on a positive commandment like like uh, hearing mass, there are there are if it's a sufficiently grave reason, you can you can miss and you can miss parts of it. You take the kids out. You can do two things at the same time at mass. That's why you can go to confession. In fact, there's a there's something uh, from the Holy See on that in, in uh, ten years ago or so, just to remind people that that's perfectly all right. Okay, so if one arrives at the church after the consecration, there's to be no other at mass to follow there's probably no obligation to remain because Mass cannot then be substantially heard. Good Catholics would remain, however, for the sake of prayer. Those who habitually come late for Mass commend sins of disobedience and scandal. They are mistaken in thinking they act up to the spirit of Catholicism by being in time for the Gospel, a very common error. But it will not be a grave sin, and no sin at all, if there's reasonable excuse to hear successfully the complementary parts of two Masses, even in inverse order. In other words, if somebody was go- going to the 9 o'clock Mass, but for whatever reason, they had to change a tire, so they got there like after the Gospel, they just say, oh, well, I'll just stay for the next Mass and go, go to the Gospel. So that's obviously in verse order. That's no sin at all. That's just circumstances. But the con- consecration communion should be in the one Mass. So uh, hopefully that answered all the questions and didn't raise more, but it's, it's worth going over in, in any event. All right. That was like a freebie. Now we'll have the sermon.
He brought him to an inn and took care of him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. We'll start today with some excerpts from a letter written to me by a nurse. Quote, this is a case I worked on in Fort Worth for a very large hospice firm. The patient was an elderly man who had end-stage cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Right before my shift ended, the assessment nurse in charge of the case came in and said she was surprised to see that he was still alive. Strangely, she took me in another room so the wife could not hear her speak to me. She then told me to tell my replacement nurse to take the oxygen off the patient when the wife went to bed so the wife wouldn't know and so he would die. Greatly distressed by this, I made sure the company was informed and never said a word to the oncoming shift nurse. I thought this nurse case manager would be terminated from her job for wanting to euthanize a patient. Sadly, I was wrong. Close quote. She has three more stories along the same lines, one with not such a good ending. Thankfully, that patient wasn't killed. But the point here is that they actually are killing people, deliberately killing people, not just in Oregon and Washington and Montana where they have doctor-prescribed suicide. They're killing people. You've all heard about Terry Schiavo. That's going on every day in many hospice situations and in many hospitals. We priests see this more often than you might think. And many times there isn't a thing that we can do about it. But there's something that you can do about it. And everyone needs to listen carefully what we're going to say here. And then you need to take the action, the course of action that we're going to explain at the end of the sermon. Before we go any farther, let's back up and make sure we have a good hold on the basic teaching of the church. And then we'll go forward from there. So this is just going to be a flying trot. Okay, first, church teaching on euthanasia, so-called mercy killing. In May of 1980, the Holy See issued a document entitled Declaration on Euthanasia. Some excerpts. Quote, No one, by no one they mean no one, no one can in any way permit the killing of an innocent human being, including a person who is dying. No one is permitted to ask for this act of killing, either for himself or for another person entrusted to his care. Nor can he consent to it, either explicitly or implicitly. Nor can any authority legitimately recommend or permit such an action. For it is a question of the violation of the divine law, an offense against the dignity of the human person, a crime against life, an attack on humanity. Close quotes. Next, the church teaching on ordinary and extraordinary care. With respect to medical issues, Catholics generally realize when they're sick or ailing or even dying, they have to accept what we call ordinary care, but they are free to refuse extraordinary care. They're free to accept it, too, but they're free to refuse extraordinary care. But Catholics are often confused about the difference between ordinary care and extraordinary care, and there's more than one reason for this. As you're going to see, what we mean 
by ordinary care and extraordinary care is not the same thing that the medical community means by it. They're not wrong. They just use the terms but have a different significance for it. It's not wrong. It just doesn't mean what we mean when we're talking about Catholic moral teaching. So we'll go through the Catholic moral teaching, and then we'll see how the medical community uses it, and you'll see where the confusion can arise. Okay. We're going to quote from an excellent document written in 1974 by the Florida bishops. The pastoral letter on death and the care of the dying. Quote, Ordinary means for preserving life include not only food, drink, and rest, but also in terms of hospital practice, all medicines, treatments, and operations which offer a reasonable hope of benefit for the patient and which can be obtained and used without excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience, close quote. Now, we also have papal teaching on this. On March 20, 2004, Blessed John Paul II stated, quote, The sick person in a vegetative state awaiting recovery or a natural end still has the right to basic health care, nutrition, hydration, cleanliness, warmth, etc., and to the prevention of complications related to his confinement to bed. In other words, you have to move him or you get bed sores. He also has the right to appropriate rehabilitative care and to be monitored for clinical signs of eventual recovery. I should like particularly to underline how the administration of water and food, even when provided by artificial means, for example, a tube, always represents a natural means of preserving life, not a medical act. Its use, furthermore, should be considered in principle ordinary and proportionate and as such morally obligatory insofar as it consists in providing nourishment to the patient, alleviation of his suffering. Close quote, the vicar of, of Christ. Now, that last part, it's important to understand something. There may be, a, he's speaking of a, a particular situation where it might not be obligatory to provide food and water. What would that situation be? He's saying when it is not nourishing and alleviating the suffering. In other words, if a person's actually dying right then and now, or let's say their kidneys have crashed, so food and water, whether by mouth or tube feeding at that moment, would not be called for precisely because they're no longer nourishing or hydrating the person. They're actually harming the person in that one kind of a situation, if that makes sense. It makes sense what I'm saying there. So that you don't st- his kidneys have totally crashed. You don't just have to keep pouring the fluid in. He just starts ballooning out. That's not necessary. But other than that particular kind of situation, they're actually dying, not like they're going to die. Yeah, we know that. We're all going to die. But, I mean, they're actually dying right then or, or something. That's it. Okay. So what the church means by ordinary care is food, drink, rest, warmth, basic hygiene, reposition, or movement. Same thing. Every one of those things you give to a little baby. This is not rocket science. I'll do that again. Food, drink, rest, warmth, basic hygiene, reposition or movement. Then all medical procedures which offer a reasonable hope of benefit and which don't cause excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience. That is what the church means by ordinary care. And this is also where common sense and Christian morality come crashing just headlong into our insane American legal system. 
an executive director of Patients' Rights Council, Rita Marker. She's a wonderful Catholic grandma, a really sharp lawyer who spent decades fighting the proponents of euthanasia. She points out, quote, food and fluids, especially provided by tube, are considered medical treatment from a legal standpoint. Whether one agrees or disagrees with this, and I certainly disagree with it, and obviously to the church, because the Pope just made clear that's not it, but she says, whether one agrees or disagrees with it, it is entrenched in the law. Close quote. Everybody needs to understand that. Food or fluids, especially provided by tube, are considered medical treatment from the legal point of view. Well, who cares if food and fluids aren't taken by a spoon or whatever. Every baby started off that way, as I recall, you know. And whether he's nursing or using a bottle, I don't think a bottle was just some kind of extraordinary medical treatment when you give a baby a bottle. But just when this all this media circus was around, the, the, they were the state-sponsored execution of, of Terry Schiavo there, the court-ordered murder of her. I just thought, yeah, I can't believe this. So I called one of my godsons. He's, at that time, he was 11 years old, out on a ranch in a very remote part of Montana. And sure enough, at that age, he was already tubing calves and lambs. Okay, it was no surprise to find that out. Like most Montana ranch kids of his age, he knew how to tube calves and lambs as they needed. This is a kid 50 miles from town in Garfield County, Montana. So if an 11-year-old boy from way out in the Thule's already has the necessary veterinary skills and expertise to tube calves and lambs, then you aren't going to convince me one little bit that tubing a human being that needs it is some sort of extraordinary, high-tech kind of medical procedure. It's just taking care of one of our sick brothers and sisters, and that's all it is. Okay, so what have we seen? We've seen that ordinary care means food, drink, rest, warmth, basic hygiene, repositioning or movements, all medical procedures which offer a reasonable hope of benefit and which don't cause excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience. We've also seen that despite common sense, an authoritative teaching of Christ's church from a legal standpoint in these United States, food and fluids, especially provided by tube, are considered uh, medical treatment. We also saw that in certain situations, as, as the, the circumstance like someone's dying actually right then and there, or perhaps their kidneys have totally crashed, food and water, whether by mouth or tube feeding, would not be called for precisely because they're no longer serving their function of nourishing or hydrating the person. Okay, so that's ordinary care. What do we mean by extraordinary means? I quote, extraordinary means for preserving life for all medicines, treatments, and operations which cannot be obtained or used without excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience for the patient or for others, or which if used would not offer reasonable hope or benefit for the patient. Okay, so what the church means for extraordinary means is all medical procedures which either don't offer reasonable hope of benefit for the patient or which cause excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience. That's extraordinary care. It's really important for us to have this basic understanding of what the church means when she uses the terms ordinary care and extraordinary care, since, as I've already mentioned, these terms are not used in precisely the same fashion by the medical community. What are we saying? We're saying that when a physician uses the term ordinary care, it's very possible he means something along these lines. He means the prevailing standard, recognized or established uh, uh, medicines or procedures that are currently available 
or currently being used. Now, that's not wrong. That's fine. But we have to realize that he's using the term in a different way than what we are when we're talking about moral teaching. And again, when we use the term ordinary care, it means things food, drink, rest, warmth, hygiene, repositioning, movement, all medical procedures which offer a reasonable hope of benefit and which don't cause excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience. All right. When a physician uses the term extraordinary care, it's very possible he means something like this. He means using medical treatments or procedures that are fanciful, bizarre, experimental, incompletely established, unorthodox, or not recognized. Again, that's not wrong. It's fine. But it's not what we mean when we're talking morally. To remind us again, what the church means by extraordinary care, it means all medical procedures which don't either don't offer reasonable hope of benefit for the patient or which cause excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience. It's important for us to realize that what we mean by that in the medical community isn't the same thing. They're not wrong. They just use it in a different way. Quick review. When someone is sick or ailing or even dying, they have to accept and or be provided ordinary care, but they can morally refuse extraordinary care. They're free to refuse extraordinary care. Again, ordinary care is food, drink, rest, warmth, hygiene, repositioning movement, all medical procedures which offer a reasonable hope for benefit and don't cause excessive expense. Have to accept that. Extraordinary care means all medical procedures which either don't offer reasonable hope for benefit for the patient or cause excessive expense, pain, or other inconvenience. Don't have to. A person could morally refuse to accept that, and they're perfectly within their rights. Okay, let's return to the letter from the nurse. Quote, Far too many living wills are being pushed by these companies and doctors. I would encourage everyone to get prepended medical power of attorney to fill out designating somebody truly Catholic as your decision maker. They don't necessarily have to be Catholic. They just have to be a good advocate. I'm going to insert this. They have to be a real advocate, and they have to be willing to follow these kind of teachings. You could have somebody that, that isn't, maybe you're married to somebody that isn't Catholic, but you know they'll respect this. That's fine. They have to be somebody that's assertive. You don't want a Casper milk toast when you're in this. This is somebody that has to be assertive. Okay. Make sure you know what they believe. If you are to trust them, it's a very important task. Not all Catholics value life from conception to death. Never sign a DNR. That's a do not resuscitate order. Close quote. So never sign a living will. Never sign a DNR. We're going to unfold this as we go. Read a marker. Quote, removing food and water because the person is considered burdensome or better off dead is legally permitted. Think about that. And we've seen it. I haven't asked Father this morning. I know I've seen it. I've seen it with a friend of mine. What a thing you could do. They thirst him to death. They just jack up. They keep jacking up the morphine bit by bit. It's common. Removing food and water because a person is considered burdensome or better off dead is legally permitted. Nowadays, healthcare providers are more likely than not to suggest and in some cases pressure patients or their decision makers to authorize withholding or withdrawal of the medical treatment of foods and fluids. That is another reason why it is so important that a person be assertive regarding his or her own rights and name an agent in a durable power of attorney for health care who can be assertive on the person's behalf. Close quote. Do not sign a living will. Do not sign a DNR. 
And do give someone reliable, someone you can literally trust with your life, someone that will follow the teachings of the church, your durable power of uh, attorney for medical care. Okay. Now, what does all this mean? Now, let's pause and define some terms so we can see what it means. First off, what is an advanced directive? Quote, an advanced directive is a document by which a person makes provision for health care decisions in the event that in the future he becomes unable to make those decisions. There are two main types of advanced directives, the living will and the durable power of attorney for health care. There are also hybrid documents which combine elements. Close quote. Okay, another important point. Quote, some facilities, particularly nursing homes, erroneously tell patients they must have an advanced directive. And many facilities assume that they are required to offer patients an advanced directive, usually a living will, to sign at the time of admission when the patient is naturally under stress and filling out a myriad of other paperwork. Sometimes patients who are anxious to complete admission procedures sign every paper placed before them. This could result in signing a living will without even realizing it until it's too late. That is why it is extremely important to read documents before signing them. Although it is certainly prudent to have an advanced directive, both federal and state laws prohibit health facilities from requiring anyone to have sign an advanced directive. If you or a loved one are told that an advanced directive must be signed before care and treatment can be given, courteously but firmly explain that such a requirement is a violation of the law. Close quote. So I called home, had my parents check at the local hospital. Sure enough, sometime in the process, they had a living will sign. Get that and rid of that. They did. We're about to see why it's so important not to sign a living will, but first we better ask, what is a living will? Quote, a living will is the oldest type of health care advanced directive. It is a signed, witnessed, or notarized document called a declaration or directive. Most declarations instruct an attending physician to withhold or withdraw medical interventions from its signer if he is in a terminal condition and is unable to make decisions about medical treatment. Since an attending physician who may be unfamiliar with the signer's wishes and values has the power and authority to carry out the signer's directive, certain terms contained in the document may be interpreted by the physician in a manner that was not intended by the signer. Family mothers and others who are familiar with the signer's values and wishes have no legal standing to interpret the meaning of the directive, close quote. Everyone, I hope, heard that. Certain terms contained in the document may be interpreted by the physician in a manner that's not intended by the signer. And family members, other people that are familiar with the signer's wishes, have no legal standing to interpret the meaning of the directive. Do not sign a living will. It can be interpreted in ways that are actually contrary to your wishes in the teaching of Holy Mother of the Church. Case in point. Quote, Mary Jo Estep, a very active retired school teacher, broke her hip. As part of her rehabilitation, she checked into a nursing home where on admission she signed a living will that stated she was not to receive extraordinary measures if she was dying. A few days before she was to go home, a tired nurse gave Miss Estep the wrong medication a mistake that could have been easily reversed at a local hospital emergency room. But that didn't happen. Instead, 
a doctor wrongly interpreted her living will to mean that Estep would not want treatment. By evening, she was in severe distress with her blood pressure failing and pulse weakening. She died that night. Legal experts in Washington later said that Estep's case found into the mercury and untested realm of state law. Eventually, the case was resolved when the nursing home was fined $2,500 for a medication error. Close quote. Well, that's just beautiful. That's just beautiful. So she's dead. Do not sign a living will. It can be interpreted in ways that are actually contrary to wishes and the teaching of the church. Be careful, really careful when being admitted, nursing home or hospital, as they may very well try to get you to sign one as part of the mission's process. Okay, now what do we mean by a durable power of attorney for health care, the other kind of advanced directive? Quote, a durable power of attorney for health care is signed, is a signed, witnessed, or notarized document which is signer designates an agent to make health care decisions if the signer is temporarily or permanently unable to make such decisions. Unlike most living wills, the durable power of attorney for health care does not require the signer have a terminal condition. An agent must be chosen with great care, since the agent will have great power and authority to make decisions about whether health care will be provided, withheld, or withdrawn from the signer. It is extremely important that the signer carefully discuss his values, wishes, and instructions with the agent before and at the time the document is signed. Such discussions may also continue after the document is signed. It is also important that the agent be willing to exercise his power and authority to make certain the signer's values, wishes, and instructions are respected. Close quote. In other words, you want somebody that will be assertive and not get mowed down by some aggressive ethics committee. You can get a durable power attorney for health care which is called the Protective Medical Decisions Document. This is the Texas version from the Patient's Rights Council. There's no charge, but they do ask for a $15 donation. If you end up needing it, it'll be the best 15 bucks you ever spent. The Protective Medical Decisions Document is a carefully drafted, durable power of attorney for health care that has been designed to meet state requirements and to protect the signer. It limits your agent's authority in one specific way clearly stating their agent does not have the authority to prove the direct and intentional ending of your life. For example, your agent may not authorize you to be given a lethal injection or an intentional drug overdose. Furthermore, your agent may not direct you to be denied foods or fluids for the purpose of causing your death by starvation or dehydration. That limitation only protects you, but also protects your agent from being pressured to authorize those actions. It also has specific directions that are necessary in the current medical climate. For example, some health care providers have taken it upon themselves to put do not resuscitate DNR orders in place without the patient's or agent's authorization. Similarly, some health care providers, ethics committees, and health facilities are making decisions about what is appropriate, beneficial, or futile based on institutional cost containment or subjective quality of life decisions not on the basis of what is best for or wanted by the patient. That's just going to get worse as this Obamacare stuff grinds in. The document makes it clear that DNR orders and decisions about what is appropriate, beneficial, or futile are made only by your agent and only if you are unable to make those decisions. Close quote. And these documents are state-specific. That's what the Patients' Right Council does. They've been fighting euthanasia for decades. 
And so you have really sharp lawyers there. There's Rita Marker, she's Catholic, Wesley Smith, he's Jewish. There's a, a group of really sharp lawyers that fight euthanasia. That's what they do, patients' right counsel. So who needs one of these? Everyone who's reached the age of 18. For example, Rita Marker has an example. Parents of college students, if they're carrying the kid on their, on their insurance, they take it for granted that, uh, that if he gets hurt or something and he's off at college, they have the right to make medical decisions for that son or daughter if, who's temporarily permanent unable to do so. But it's possible, quite possible, in the absence of an advanced directive, without having something like that, parents of an ill or injured college student might not even be able to take, find out basic information about their child's condition. Ever since there's a federal law called HIPAA, it's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Ever since that thing went in effect, it's a nightmare for a priest because you can no longer find out who's Catholic. But ever since that went into effect, some health facilities have, provi- have refused to provide information to anyone, even family members, about a hospitalized adult, anyone over the age of 18, unless the patient's already given written consent. Well, if they're out cold, they're not going to give written consent. But if you have a durable power of attorney for health care, they do have the right to get that information. People get fire insurance. It's the same kind of idea. Competent adults should get something like this, even though, please God, you'll never have the need to use it. But everyone from the age 18 on up should have something like this. Believe me, the priests get to these situations, and you watch what they're, they're killing them. And there you stand. Who, who's got the medical power of attorney? They, you know, they're killing them. Some bad news. Do healthcare providers have to honor all the decisions made by a patient or their agent? No, they don't. The point is, is this is the best we can do. The sad reality is in most states, if you want life-saving treatment or even food and fluids, there's no guarantee that your wishes will be honored. But you can really help to stack those odds in your favor by assigning the durable power attorney for health care to a good and assertive Catholic friend or someone that will respect all the teachings of the church on your behalf that's assertive, someone who will not be intimidated by ethics committees, health care providers who may be pushing for unacceptable treatments. That's the best way to make sure that a patient's right to receive ordinary care is not mowed down by a doctor or nurse's power to deny care, cut off food or water, or administer a deadly overdose. Get one of these documents. Okay, let's close with an example of what can come of having a good Catholic who follows the teaching of the church have the durable power of attorney. I'm quoting again from a letter from the same nurse. Quote, During his long life, my father-in-law wanted no point of religion and said so in not-so-nice terms. He was not really raised with any religion and didn't even know if he was baptized. He led an angry and unholy life. Not long before he died, we asked if he wanted to talk to a priest. He said yes. He agreed to put on a brown scapular. But then he started internally bleeding and had to be rushed to the hospital for a blood transfusion. The hospital tried to take off the brown scapular, but we said it must be left on. They were unable to stop the bleeding. The transfusions just bled out of him. His kidneys and vascular organs started to shut down. The hospital would have put him into a drug state, but we refused. The hospital wanted to override our decision, and I promptly went home and returned with a copy of his medical power of attorney. I called the priest. But before he arrived, my father-in-law slipped into a coma. 
Try as we might, we're unable to rouse him from this state. I kept saying the Hail Mary over him and would tell him to repeat the words to himself. I'd also whisper in the ear to call upon the holy name of Mary. The priest arrived, and at that minute, my father-in-law opened his eyes. The priest asked him if he wanted to become Catholic, and if so, to squeeze his hand. He squeezed his hand. The priest then asked all of us to leave the room for a while. When we came back in, the priest conditionally baptized him and gave him extreme unction. My father-in-law was very weak, but completely aware of what was going on. When the priest was done, my father-in-law kept trying to talk, so he removed his oxygen mask, and he clearly thanked the priest, not once, but twice. He then closed his eyes and never opened them again. He died clothed in the brown scapular within hours after the priest left on September 12th, the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary. If we would have allowed him to have all the morphine and other drugs the hospital wanted to give him, he would not have been in a lucid state. He would not have been able to give his consent to become Catholic. We thank God and our Blessed Mother for this miraculous deathbed conversion. And I want to thank God and Our Lady too. Get one of these protective medical decisions documents. Get one.